So Glory here has long been one of my favorite movies and probably my favorite Civil War movie. So it was nice to revisit it for this. And I I know I'd researched this in the past because I mentioned having done a speech on it in college, but uh, I didn't remember a lot of the stuff I had found. So actually some of the stuff was, was brand new to me. And it, it's kind of definitely a mix of some stuff they got spot on and some stuff that they just completely made up and you kind of wonder why they made it up or left it out but uh actually real quick before we get to glory i had mentioned to you off air last time that i had meant to read the gettysburg address oh right yeah at the at the end of our episode on gettysburg and we kind of just forgot slash ran out of time and i do think it's important I mean, obviously, everybody kind of knows that the Gettysburg Address is important. But even, like, for our project here, we're trying to, like, place everything in context with in the timeline here. And I think if you hear the Gettysburg Address after having listened to our full discussion of the Battle of Gettysburg, I think it just adds something to the speech itself. And it's not as long uh, as you think. And it's actually pretty simple. I mean, his sentiments are pretty, pretty simple. So... With your permission, I will go ahead and read the full uh, Gettysburg address here. It should just take to just take a minute or two here. Are you my my Lincoln impression? Are you going to do your impression of Daniel Day Lewis doing an impression of uh, Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> um, I mean, now I kind of want to, but I also feel like uh, it's going to suck. So. Four score and seven years ago. That's a uh, that's borderline disrespectful, there, Rich. <laughs> Okay, I can't, I'll, I'll start laughing if I do that. I'll just use my normal radio voice here. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do so. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. So yeah, he's basically just saying like, yeah, sucks that we're having a civil war right now, and a bunch of people on our side just fought really well and died here, and that sucks, but this ground is now holy. Yeah. Like, that's kind of all he's saying. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, so we've talked about the civil war up to this point, and then when we get to glory here, we are looking at, like, very specifically, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, an African-American regiment, which was still in, uh, led by white officers because basically they weren't going to let it happen otherwise. And this is kind of right on the heels. Like a lot of this stuff, like, we've had several movies 
have important scenes set in July of 1863. Right. Gettysburg, the race riots, or, or draft riots that turn into race riots in New York City, and then the final battle in this film are all in the same month in July of 1863. Yeah, this... This is essentially uh, co-located on the timeline with with Gettysburg. Yes, yeah. Uh, couple weeks, the final battle is a couple weeks after, but yes, as far as, but yeah, well, right, right. I I just mean like when we're talking about all of American history or even all of the Civil War, this is like basically right at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of crazy too. So if you think about so Gettysburg being Lee's push into the north, trying to take the battle, you know, up into the north, you know, north of DC into Pennsylvania. But then at the same time, right. we mentioned Grant being down by Mississippi, but then also something like this. Was it already kind of this counter push into South Carolina, or was this a quick move right after Gettysburg to go south, or kind of both? It's kind of a separate, it's like a separate kind of thing. So you basically have the south going up to the north, at the same time the north is going down to the south. These battles are kind of happening simultaneously, because war is chaos. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a like front line. I guess you think about like World War One is very, you know, these decided fronts, and you kind of, you know, trying to gain a foot, gain a yard. The Civil War really didn't have a front. It's just kind of battles. Well, it 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 did. There there were there were fronts. I mean, well, okay, not a not a front, but there were territorial games. There were lines. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was not. Uh, yeah, it wasn't like something where you would think of like in um in like World War One or World War Two, where across the entire line you have a front that is like you have units all along the entire line at all times. I gotcha. Okay. You know, okay. this is like the arm the, the army is just kind of a blob that moves around, but it can't be, you know, the the mobility of the time was not such that you could have a, a hundreds of miles long front line like you can, you know, today or even, you know, back in in the early 20th century. So it's more like that game where you're the the little circle going around trying to eat the other circles and your circle gets bigger. You seen that game? Sure, yeah. Kind of, yeah, okay. it's kind of like that. <laughs> okay, okay. So, uh, again, I mentioned really liking this movie, and I still do. I do kind of see, so this is a movie that I had actually long thought got screwed, not only out of a Best Picture nomination, but I was arguing that it should have won Best Picture in 1989. This was a particularly stacked year, but uh, Driving Miss Daisy ended up winning, Yeah, which is fine, but... Anyway, this time through, though, I did kind of see some of the chinks in the armor, so to speak, with with uh, Glory. Like, I still really like it, and it is very good. But some mm-hmm. of the structure and how the plot flows, it just, it doesn't, it seems a hair off at times with, like, oh, well, that decision seemed to come out of nowhere, or that character development didn't quite flow naturally. There's, again, minor tweaks, but if you are trying to say why it didn't get a Best Picture nomination, I can maybe see it in some of those things. Yeah. I, I have a couple of things like that, too, that I noticed that I'll probably bring up as we talk about this. But speaking of the Oscars, Denzel's performance, I thought, was well worth the Oscar that he won. I mean, man, it's got to be at least top five, if not top three, Denzel Washington performances for me. Like, it's so good. Although I was also thinking, like, halfway through the movie, I'm like, is Morgan Freeman not every bit as good? But they're different okay. performances. They're different performances, though. I thought that too. Different performances. Also, Morgan Freeman did get an Oscar nomination, not for oh, this, but he got one for Driving Miss Daisy the same year. <laughs> right. Oh man, he could have been legit up for both. Okay, which which makes me want to ask: Has there ever been? You're you're more versed in the Oscar history stuff. Has there ever been a year where the same person gets nominated for two different um, performances? Okay, 
not in the same category. So both supporting. I I don't think it's actually allowed. I don't think you're allowed to be nominated twice in the same category. Oh, okay. Has it ever happened where someone gets like best actor for one movie and best supporting for a different movie? Like they get nominated like the same person is nominated for two acting Oscars in the same in the same year. I know it's happened I know it's happened for the Golden Globes. Uh the first person that comes to mind is is actually ScarJo. Okay. Oh, really? For what? Uh so like her breakout year Again, it wasn't the Oscars, though. So she only has two Oscar nominations. Wait, hang on. Did she do it? Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, this is crazy. So I was first thinking ScarJo might have done it for Girl with a Pearl Earring slash Lost in Translation in her first, like, breakout year where she kind of went from Who's That to, to Superstar. Mm. And then in thinking she might have done that also at the Oscars. So it was the, for 2003 movies, 2004 awards season. She was nominated for, oh, because it was uh, lead in actress, or lead in drama and lead in musical. So that was two different categories. Ah, okay. But no, she did do it at the Oscars just a few years ago because she was supporting actress in Jojo Rabbit and lead actress in A Marriage Story same year. Ah, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, good, good on Scar Joe. I was thinking it was for 20 years earlier. And she's like, no, it was this year. So since, since Scarlett Johansson has done it, I would assume then that they're are probably other people that have done that. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to look that up separately. I mean it it's yeah, it it'd be a it'd be a, a real deep dive into Oscar statistics, but yeah, but, but specifically I don't think in the same category it's actually allowed. It's it's not allowed. Okay. All right. You have you have to pick one performance to submit for yourself. Kind of, or, or or honestly cuz I think the film submits you basically have to tell, "Hey, this film, hey, can you not submit so I don't basically cannibalize myself?" Oh. And I'm going to I'm going to try to run on this movie. Oh, right, yeah. So I'm not disqualified or whatever. I wonder I wonder how that works too. So like if the production of Driving Miss Daisy and the production of Glory both wanted to submit Morgan Freeman for best supporting actor, is it just whoever gets there first? Or is it, do they have to, like, come to an agreement? Like, if they both submit, is he disqualified? Well, no, I don't think he's, I don't think he's How does that disqualified. Work? I think he's going to cannibalize his own vote. And he's, he's going to end up for neither because people are going half for one, half for the other. So that you're just screwing him over. Right, but you but you said it's it's not, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to, oh, you, you can't be nominated, but you could be submitted. Yeah, so yeah, ultimately when they're counting okay. the votes, if you end up third and fourth, they would probably just eliminate your fourth and move someone else up. Ah, okay, I see what you're saying. So... Theoretically, those two films could have both submitted him, but he's only allowed to get one nomination. Right, and that's what I'm saying. It could screw you, because then instead of being fourth for the one movie, you end up being Uh, sixth and seventh, and therefore not nominated. Okay, yeah. Anyway, (laughs) yes, great great performance by by Denzel. And uh, I even wrote in my notes, like, oh man, is Freeman better? But then you kind of get some of the... You know the very poignant Denzel scenes, not just the whipping scene that's kind of famous, but when he's uh, when he they're doing the uh, what do they call that the spiritual kind of thing at the end, the little song. Yeah, that I I thought the same thing because the, the famous one is the is the whipping scene with the tear roll. Yeah, where he's staring down Matthew Broderick and the and the single tear like that's the famous one. But I I think that scene where they're doing the where they're having the their like spiritual meeting or gathering of all the of all the black troops before the final battle and he's kind of like he's kind of like uneasy and you know kind of wants to keep up that front of the tough guy thing but then you know Morgan Freeman like gradually gets him to let that down and then he ends up being vulnerable in front of all of his all the other troops talking about how they're the only family he's ever had and 
it doesn't matter what happens the next day because he's going to be with them. And I thought that was is is even to me is even better than the whipping scene. Like it's even more powerful and shows even more range and character development. Yes. Than any other singular scene in the in the movie. Yeah, Freeman's is the more traditional big speech, well-spoken kind of guy versus Denzel's giving the very nuanced, oh, this guy's deeper than we realized kind of thing. That is another knock I do kind of see, and, and I could definitely see if they made this movie today, they would they would switch is, so you're making a point to tell a movie about African-American soldiers during the Civil War, and you choose the white guy as the protagonist? Like, why couldn't you tell the movie from Morgan Freeman's point of view? Have Morgan Freeman be the main character and we see Shaw through his eyes instead of the other way around. Yeah, it would make it more interesting, too, because you could get to see him as, like, the gravedigger for the soldiers, right. and then he is then inspired, you know, to join once the once black soldiers are allowed to join, and then you have him, like, trying to navigate, like, the... Because there's, there's the, there is tension, like, between him and Denzel in the movie where he's like, oh, you're nothing but the white the white guy's dog you know, you're just, you know, you just have, you have the stripes. And so you're just, you're basically, you know, just an extension of the, of the white guy's oppression on us. And so you can have, it would be a lot more interesting to have your main character be trying to navigate that instead of just the main character being uh, Matthew. Yes. And, and again, you know, times change and and this is still a very solid movie, but it maybe doesn't hold up quite as well as I had hoped. And choosing Shaw, again, you could argue for the 1980s makes, makes sense. As a lot of this is inspired by letters he actually did write, we have a lot of these letters are still around today. So you could you could basically it's like you want voiceover narration. We have this guy's actual letters home to his parents during all this stuff going on to kind of start from. Yeah, that's that's a good point as far as like grounding it in historical reality. Having having Shaw be the main character does make a lot of sense because we have the writings of him from the time. Whereas Morgan Freeman's character is completely fictitious, and there's even there's even stuff like that some other characters say that is direct quotes as reported in Shaw's yes. letters home. Yes. And the one thing before I get into the deep dive of Shaw here, that is kind of frustrating is, so you have Shaw is based on an actual guy. I mean, the like name and everything, but then, then all the African-American troops that they focus on Denzel and Morgan Freeman, but also like their, their friend Thomas from back home, like all those are fictional. But there were real people, there were real uh, soldiers in this troop that you could have used their names and their stories, and they chose to invent right. people instead. And, and I actually will break down a few of them later, but uh, I just wanted to kind of mention that before we get to Shaw. Yeah, even even if there's not much known about the person but their name. That's still something. At least name right. your characters. Yeah, at least name your characters right. the same. So yeah, in, in broad strokes, they get Shaw's story correct again just looking at the broad strokes in that he is a guy from boston from a well-to-do family who was given command of the all-black 54th massachusetts and then who died leading them on the failed attack at fort wagner all that again those couple sentences 100 percent true that all happened details a little different here but yeah he was actually from a prominent enough family that there are multiple members of his immediate family who have their own wikipedia pages that have nothing to do with him like they're prominent enough in their own right in abolitionist circles and political circles that they have their own their own pages there uh as a teenager shaw spent time in europe actually a couple years the family was over in europe so he's going to boarding school in switzerland 
the habit of writing letters home to his parents kind of began during that time or maybe even before at U.S. boarding schools. And uh, I wrote, how abolitionist was his family? Well, Harriet Beecher Stowe was a family friend of theirs, uh, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, kind of the big abolitionist book at the time. In the movie, they show Frederick Douglass, and he was in Massachusetts at the time. So, I mean, if they were prominent abolitionists, I'm sure they knew him, too. Uh, as well as Sojourner Truth was also in Massachusetts oh, dang, at the yeah. time, um, and maybe even maybe even John Brown. Oh, that's crazy! Would he? He was kind of low lower class though, right? Would he have been welcome at these parties? Right, but I'm saying he was he was in Massachusetts at the time and would have been running in abolitionist circles. He was attending lectures by people gotcha. like William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth. So. It's not inconceivable that may, I, he probably wasn't associating with them much because they would have been like higher society and he was not as rich. But it's not inconceivable that they didn't maybe meet at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Unless unless they were over in Europe at the time kind of thing. But yeah. Good point. So, uh, so Shaw went to Harvard but didn't finish. He was always kind of bright enough in school but always felt out of place. I mean, all through like grade school and college, he just never felt at home at school. Like he just never got along with his classmates are just kind of just socially awkward and a lot of his letters back home to his parents were kind of about that not necessarily complaining about the institutions but just his inability to integrate with everybody else there and then all this kind of just times out right that he was the right age and from an abolitionist background to volunteer for the civil war when it broke out he did see action at antietam and was uh, wounded twice and promoted to captain by the end of 1862. So actually, why don't you step in and talk to us a little bit about the Battle of Antietam, which is the battle we see at the beginning of the film. So we talked a little bit a little bit about it in the Gettysburg episode, but uh, just, to, just to do a little recap, uh, the Battle of Antietam was Robert E. Lee's uh, first attempted incursion into the north. Um, he wanted to cross the Potomac into Maryland and basically do the exact same thing that he does later on with Gettysburg, where he threatens Washington, D.C. in an attempt to force a political victory on behalf of the South. Not necessarily to conquer the North militarily, but just threaten the capital and get them to kind of sign a deal that was a little more beneficial to the South. Unfortunately for Lee, his invasion was thwarted when his plans were discovered And so McClellan and the Army of the Potomac were prepared for the invasion, so they marched out to meet him at the Battle of Antietam. That rhymes uh, completely uh, unintentional. (laughs) Uh, And McClellan and the Union Army, they were successful in pushing him back um, and keeping him from successfully invading the North, but it came at a very high cost. And like we said uh, in the Gettysburg episode, It was and still is the single bloodiest day in American history uh, with over 3,600 confirmed dead. I mean, the the real number is is maybe even higher, but we're talking like over 3,600 guys whose names they knew who died at at Antietam. Yeah, and Shaw was there. Right, Shaw was there. and, and, uh, And Ford, the movie does a good job of kind of illustrating the attitude towards the battle like the medic that's fixing him up says oh yeah you know this was like a great victory but meanwhile he's like there's dead bodies everywhere and he's in the medic tent and like you know it's like tons of wounded people so it's like technically at a strategic level yeah it was a victory because they kept the confederates from invading the north 
but I mean, they lost so many, so many guys. Right. And then they, we see Morgan Freeman's character is taking care of the dead afterward. So he's not a soldier yet, but this would have mm-hmm. been a role that African-Americans could have had during the time. So yeah, as far as the use of African-American soldiers. So the North was hesitant to use uh, African-American soldiers when the war first started because racism. <laughs> they So even all these anti-slavery, you know, basically thought that African-Americans would just be too dumb and unruly and ultimately just an embarrassment to their cause. So we shouldn't do that. We want them to be free, but they're a bunch of idiots, so we don't want them to be soldiers. Like that was basically the Northern attitude. Yeah, like we talk about, you know, history is complicated. And like we also have talked about, just because, you know, the the majority sentiment in the North was anti-slavery did not mean that it wasn't still racist. Just different racism. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And those two things, like they're not, uh, they they don't have to necessarily go hand in hand. Right, right. So in real life, Governor Andrew of Massachusetts, who we do meet briefly in the film, uh, he kept trying to make it happen. So he was advocating for the use of African-American soldiers from the beginning uh, and even goes down. This is not in the film, but he went down to like D.C. to advocate and like really, really push. He was pushing hard uh, to make this happen. And they finally do get approval. And then they kind of start having these regiments. But uh, basically the rules they they got them to concede was like, okay, yes, but we're not going to integrate them with the regular regiments. There's going to be separate African-American regiments and they have to have white officers. But basically signing off on those things uh, were what got it to happen. So when they were forming the 54th Massachusetts, they knew, or Andrew specifically, Governor Andrew knew he wanted a young commander who viewed African-Americans in a positive light. He didn't want someone to just kind of begrudgingly take this on. He needed someone with a strong abolitionist family background and someone young enough who might yeah. be ambitious enough, you know, basically someone younger probably be more likely to, to take it on. And so it kind of is just, Shaw ends up being the perfect candidate. Now, the movie way overly simplifies things here. This wasn't all decided in a th- with a dinner party that had the governor, his parents, and Frederick <laughs> Douglass all there uh, at the same time. It was more of a, over weeks and letters are sent and people are geographically apart. And so it, it does all come together, but not in like an hour at a dinner party. Yeah. And Shaw did actually hesitate even more at first because he didn't want to, he was, he'd been fighting on the front lines. He didn't want to leave the men at the front lines to go and run this regiment that he saw would never be allowed to be on the front lines. So it's almost like, well, now I'm just basically abandoning the war to go right. be like the token guy or be the guy in charge of this token regiment. And so he kind of hesitated at first, but he did ultimately right. uh, agree to take it on. Well, and uh, I think it's, isn't it uh, his friend? What's the... Carrie Ellis's character? Yeah, Carrie Ellis's character says something to him about like, or maybe it's somebody else at the dinner party, I forget, but it's like, oh, I knew you wanted to make Colonel, but you know, I didn't know you wanted to make Colonel oh. this bad that you would like... <laughs> Basically, take this this shitty assignment. Right, right. So, and here's a big one they leave out, and then I'll let you kind of talk about him here. But uh, I mentioned there are real men in this regiment, the 54th, that they could have used, and they chose all fictional people instead. Well, two of Frederick Douglass's sons were in the 54th Massachusetts, and <laughs> they just yeah. didn't go that route at all, yep. even though we see Frederick Douglass at this dinner party. So yeah, before I get into the rest of Shaw's story, why don't you talk about Frederick Douglass, like, just as a as a person and during the Civil War and everything, because he's actually kind of a fascinating figure. Yeah, so 100%. I actually, my notes on him, 
my notes on just him are about as long as the Robert E. Lee notes huh. uh, from last time. There's just there's a lot uh, to talk about. He was uh, incredibly influential in the abolitionist movement. He was actually born not Frederick Douglass, but Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey in either 1817 or 1818 in Maryland. He was mixed race, but with a father that was almost certainly white. Uh, possibly his mother's owner, though that isn't 100% known for sure. Uh, but he also, on his mother's side, was mixed race, like African-American and Native American. So he was separated from his mother at birth. Um, she worked at a plantation that was 12 miles away, so he didn't really uh, know his mother. Uh, he was actually raised by his grandmother, and apparently that was like a common thing, was to separate children even if you weren't, even if you didn't have to, it was a common thing to separate children from their from their parents and send them to a different plantation. Just you know, just cause <laughs> he was raised by his grandmother. He was taught to read um, at a young age by one of his owner's wife. So his owner, he he belonged to a family called the Alds, A U L D, and I think he was originally owned by Thomas or Thomas's wife, and then. Thomas gave him to his brother Hugh, and so this this brother Hugh Ald, his wife Sophia, taught him how to read at a young age. Taught Frederick how to read at a young age, um, and he loved reading. He loved reading books and reading stories. But the lessons were eventually stopped by Hugh, who told his wife, "Quote: If you teach him how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave." Right. So basically, like, oh, if he starts reading books and getting knowledge, he's going to realize that uh, this isn't it. <laughs> and he's, he's correct. I mean, that's that that's true. A hundred percent. But Frederick kept reading anyway, even though it was uh, forbidden. And he even taught other slaves how to read as well. Oh, wow. Good for him. In 1837, he met a woman named Anna Murray. Uh, and they fell in love. She was a free black woman in Baltimore. And her freedom... And him being in a relationship with her and seeing her freedom further inspired him to obtain his own freedom. So on September 3rd in 1838, he escaped slavery. Anna acquired a sailor's uniform and identification papers from a black, a free black sailor and uh, gave them to Douglas so that he could ex- escape north, basically disguised as a free black sailor. Not a sailor like in the Navy, probably like a merchant sailor or something, because at this time, like we have already mentioned, blacks were not allowed to be in the military. Right. So he gets on a train and then a ferry and makes it to the house of black abolitionist David Ruggles in New York City on September 4th. So it took him a day to get there. And then uh, Anna left Baltimore and met him there, and they got married on September 13th, 1838. Um, After they were married in New York, they settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and it was at this point that he changed his name. So obviously he couldn't keep going by the name Frederick Bailey because that was the name of a runaway slave. Mm. So he first changed his name to Stanley and then changed his name to Johnson, but he wanted to have a different last name than Johnson because apparently there were a ton of people in New Bedford, Massachusetts named Johnson, including... (laughs) the abolitionist who he was living with, uh, Nathan Johnson. (laughs) So he asked Nathan to suggest a name, and Nathan had just read The Lady of the Lake, the poem by Sir Walter Scott, Um, and apparently there are 
characters in the poem named Douglas, and huh. so that's where he chose the name Douglas. While he was in New Bedford, he started preaching. He became a licensed preacher in 1839, and he kind of used preaching to hone his oratory skills. And he also started to get more and more um, involved in the abolitionist movement, giving speeches and lectures detailing the horrors of slavery and radicalizing people who were already abolitionist. But even normal people who didn't really care one way or the other would reportedly go to hear these speeches and be like, oh my god, I didn't realize that slavery was that horrific and terrible. Now I'm an abolitionist. Right. It's the head in the ground kind of thing. It's the ostrich. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you have no frame of reference and, you know, your only thing is, oh, like, yeah, they're slaves, but like they're just basically farmhands, right? Like just because they're technically not allowed to leave. Like, is it really right. that bad? But then he's talking about like, no, people are chained up. People are whipped. People, you know, families are forcibly separated from each other. They're like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Uh, that's horrible. And I'm an abolitionist now. So these speeches were attended by other famous abolitionists as well, like Sojourner Truce and William Lloyd Garrison, who he became good friends with. Garrison was a uh, a white abolitionist, a famous white abolitionist living in Massachusetts at the time. Garrison was so impressed with him that he hired Frederick to write for him at The Liberator, which was a, a abolitionist newspaper that he owned. During his time writing for The Liberator, Frederick published his first book in 1845, it's his first book, as well as his most famous book, called Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. It is in that book that just like the people whose eyes were open to the horrors of slavery by his speeches, even more people had their eyes open to the horrors of slavery based on his firsthand accounts of what slavery was actually like in this book. We talked about, or, or you mentioned earlier, how people in the North, just because they were anti-slavery, didn't mean that they were also not racist. Uh, The book was actually met with scrutiny from a lot of white readers because the writing quality was so good, they thought there was no way it was written by a former slave. They're like, wait a second, he can't be smart, he's black. Right, whoever wrote this is way too smart to be a black guy, was basically the the idea that a lot of these readers had. In the North, in the North, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) In the North, right, yeah, this isn't, it's not like people from the Confederacy are saying this, this is people in the North, like, in... Massachusetts in New York are reading this book saying, nah, I don't know about this. This seems this seems too good to be written by a former slave. So the the book became hugely popular, and because of that, many people, Douglas included, felt that his former owners in Maryland might try to recapture and re-enslave him uh, after his book garnished so much attention. Oh, because now he's famous. You can't be in hiding if you're now famous. Yeah. Right. Uh, so he decided to leave the U.S. for a couple years, and he went on a trip to Ireland and Great Britain in 1845, which is actually just as the Great Famine was beginning. Oh, wow, that's right. So this, so this is the time when we see all of the uh, the huge influx of Irish immigrants into New York City right. in Gangs of New York. That's at this at this time is when Frederick Douglass is going from the U.S. He's going the other way. He goes from the U.S. To Ireland. Which means when he comes back, he's probably on a boat with a lot of those Irish, then you would think. 100%. Yep. Because he, he, he ends up coming back a couple years later. Um, but apparently, there was a, a lot of former slaves, if they were able to, went to Ireland and went to the UK because they spoke English. And the 
racial discrimination, not not just the slavery thing, but the racial discrimination was way lower there. Uh, it, it still existed, but it wasn't anywhere near what it was in the U.S. at the time. And it is actually that that lack of not only slavery, but racial discrimination amazed Frederick Douglass in his travels to Ireland. There's a quote uh, from Douglass where he says, it's kind of long, but it's, you know, I think it's important. He says, 11 days and a half gone, and I have crossed 3,000 miles of the perilous deep. Instead of a democratic government, I am under a monarchical government. Instead of the bright blue sky of America, I am covered with the soft gray fog of the Emerald Isle. I breathe, and lo, the chattel becomes a man. I gaze around in vain for one who will question my equal humanity, claim me as his slave, or offer me an insult. I employ a cab, I am seated beside white people. I reach the hotel, I enter the same door. I am shown into the same parlor, I dine at the same table, and no one is offended. I find myself regarded and treated at every turn with the kindness and deference paid to white people. When I go to church, I am met by no upturned nose and scornful lip to tell me we don't allow racial epithet uh, not included in here. That's crazy. Though, just a quick reminder about, though, the nuance of history is as accepting as the Irish in Ireland were to Douglas. The very same Irish in New York City during the draft riots started killing African-Americans over here. So it's right. always so yeah. complicated. And there's even the the uh, the Irish sergeant major oh, in, right. in the movie, yeah. who's also super racist. And uh, Carrie Elwes even says, like, oh, yeah, the Irish, like, they're not known for right. liking black people very much. Which is funny because he's saying that Irish people are racist, but, like, in that statement is also himself kind of being racist towards Irish people, saying they're racist against black people. Right. And the whole idea is no, no, no one people is a monolith. Right. Right. But yeah, so he had a, it seems like a a pretty good time in Ireland and in Great Britain, including Scotland. He uh, gave a bunch of, he tour around to churches and give speeches and lectures. And there is even to this day, uh, a historical marker in Dundee, Scotland, on one of the buildings that he stayed in that commemorates uh, the time that he spent there in Hmm. 1846. In 1847, he did end up coming back um, to the United States and settled in Rochester, New York, and established his own abolitionist and pro-women's rights newspaper called The North Star, whose motto was, Right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. That's pretty progressive for the 19th century. (laughs) Oh yeah, big time. Big time. Yeah, not just the anti-slavery thing, but the anti-racism thing, and pro-women's rights. Right, wow. So, yeah. The paper was, like I said, abolitionist pro-women's rights. Um, They opposed the idea that was going around at the time of sending free blacks back to Africa, which was uh, an idea that was gaining popularity at the time that they didn't like. They thought, well, no, we're, we're you don't need to send us back to Africa. We're Americans. We just want to be Americans like you. They also spoke out against the, at the time, new fugitive slave law, which was part of the Compromise of 1850 um, that we talked about in the Santa Fe Trail episode, where federal officials were paid, well, there was a lot of stuff uh, that the fugitive slave law said, but uh, some of the big things that they were opposed to was the fact that federal officials were paying money to bounty hunters to return fugitive slaves. The penalties for assisting runaway slaves got a lot harsher. Um, And it also required all Americans, by law, 
to assist in capturing fugitive slaves. So basically, if you see a runaway slave and you don't say anything about it, you don't report them, you could go to jail for that. Wow. And so they they wrote in opposition to the uh, to the new law. And during this time, he also uh, was using his home as a stop on the Underground Railroad. And it's estimated that he helped, at a minimum, hundreds of slaves to escape either to somewhere else in the north or, because they were in Rochester, into, uh, into Canada. In 1847, he had a kind of ideological split with William Lloyd Garrison over a disagreement about the constitutionality of slavery. So... Garrison thought that the Constitution was pro-slavery, and his big piece of evidence was the Three-Fifths Clause, saying that, you know, the states in the South could count for their population, for representation, whatever number of slaves they had, they could take 60% of that number and count it as part of their population for representation in Congress, even though none of those people could vote. Right. And Douglas originally agreed with that until he had his mind changed by a publication called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, which was written by an abolitionist named Lysander Spooner in 1846, and it argued that slavery was unconstitutional, even by the Constitution at the time, and it pointed out that no slave state specifically authorized slavery by law, that slavery violates the natural law, so it couldn't be constitutional because it violated natural law, and also, and I might just be kind of too dumb to understand this, but it argued that the intentions of the framers of the Constitution didn't hold any weight when examining the text of the Constitution itself. Basically, just because the Constitution framers might have been pro-slavery and might have wanted the Constitution to be pro-slavery doesn't mean that the text is pro-slavery if you read it in that context. I don't know. It It's very complicated, and I didn't even understand uh, the arguments that it was necessarily outlining, but Frederick Douglass did, and he. Uh, agreed with it, and from that point on, argued that the Constitution could be used as a tool to defeat slavery. Even the Constitution written at the time, so like before the 13th Amendment even. Well, and I could see that because at the time, you know, in the 1780s, 1790s, they were actually trying to keep it vague and kind of use the kid gloves. So if the argument then several decades later is, yeah, in their attempt to keep it vague... They actually ill-defined it so much that the Constitution is anti-slavery. Is kind of would be the argument, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that sh- that was a kind of a, a momentous split in the abolitionist movement at the time because that's like the two biggest names, William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, and then they end up having this kind of falling out in 1847. In 1848, he wrote an open letter to his former owner Thomas Ald. He criticized Ald's treatment of slaves, and even in the letter asked Ald how he would feel if his children were treated the same way, but then concludes at the end, writing that he has, quote, no malice towards him personally, and that, quote, there is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you as an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. Gotcha. So it's like basically slave owners suck, but this guy's still my friend if it came to that. Well, not necessarily the friend, but he tells him, like, you're a piece of shit. (laughs) You are are, uh, kind of a piece of shit for, for treating people like you treat them and for enslaving people. And how would you like it if it was done to you? But also, 
if it were up to me, I'm not saying that I would hang you or lynch you or kill you. He said, I would bring you into my own home, treat you with every kindness so that you could see how people are supposed to be treated. I would be that example. I gotcha. Yeah. Very, uh, very uh, Nelson Mandela of him. Yeah. Yeah. Nelson Mandela or uh, like a Gandhi type. Like this isn't, you know, well, maybe Gandhi's not the right example. Yeah, Gandhi was racist at times too. <laughs> well, and and Frederick Douglass wasn't a pacifist. He wasn't saying we shouldn't do violence, like Ever. no matter right, what. He was right. just saying, like, to this guy specifically, you know, I would I would treat you well if if uh, if it came to that. There's a, a a little interesting thing in here about him being the most photographed man of the 19th century, huh. because at the time photography was brand new. So he saw photography as a tool that could be used to defeat a lot of racial stereotypes against black people because the imagery of black people at the time was uh, mostly racist caricatures or uh, minstrelsy. And so he saw photography as a way to objectively depict black faces to a wider audience that would not otherwise you know, understand that. Right. Basically, they're just people. Look, here's a picture of a person. Oh, I guess they are just people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so he uh, had his photograph taken all the time. He never smiled in photographs because he didn't want to play into the stereotype of the happy slave. So we always had like, that's a famous thing. Whenever you see a picture of Frederick Douglass, he always looks very stern, very, you know, resolved, uh, very serious. And he almost always looked directly into the camera. Huh. Which is not necessarily a uh, the, the norm, a yeah. style thing yeah. for the time. Yeah, a lot of times when you see photographs of people, like for instance, uh, I have up the page for uh, Robert Shaw, and he's photographed, but he's sitting like looking away from the camera, like like you would see in like an old painting or a portrait or something, where it's like, oh, he's yes. like staring off into the distance, always looking at, like a forty five degree angle off from the camera. Yeah, right. Yeah, but Frederick Douglass almost always was looking directly into the camera when he would have his photo taken because he wanted it to be like, you know, I'm looking at you. Hmm. He uh, he did know John Brown personally, and John Brown actually attempted to recruit Douglass into the Harper's Ferry raid in 1859, but Douglass refused because he considered it a suicide mission. And it actually wasn't until like decades later that he even admitted to having the meeting in the first place. Because he thought it was like huh. so, I, I don't know if it's like controversial, but he, uh, yeah, he basically kept that meeting a secret for for like twenty years. You uh, you mentioned that the uh, the governor of Massachusetts was pushing Lincoln to allow black soldiers into the military. Frederick Douglass was also instrumental in getting Lincoln to allow black soldiers to fight for the Union. Oh yes, yes. He was he was uh, personal friends with Lincoln. So he used that influence to try to not only prioritize emancipation as part of the war policy, so shift more from just the, we need to keep the union together, to we need to free the slaves. A lot of that, it was influenced by Douglas, um, as well as allowing black soldiers in the military, not just as part of a you know strategic advantage, like we have hundreds of thousands of people who are willing to fight but aren't being allowed to. But he also thought that it would help show the dedication of black Americans to the country. Like other people would see that and realize, oh, they're they have just as much as at stake as we do, as well as demonstrating that they were willing to pay the ultimate price for their freedom and citizenship. Um, And he believed in it so much that, like you said, he recruited two of his sons to join the Union Army and they actually did serve in the 54th Massachusetts under Shaw. 
After the war was over, he continued lecturing and writing. He served in several government roles, including as the U.S. Marshal for Washington, D.C., appointed by Rutherford B. Hayes, and as uh, ambassador to Haiti, appointed by President Harrison, President Benjamin Harrison, not William Henry, obviously. And uh, he, yeah, continued writing, lecturing, and uh, serving in those roles until he eventually died of a heart attack in 1895. So yeah, I guess I never thought about it in the, in the, in the sense that, I guess, Frederick Douglass would be the first national African-American leader. Right. I mean, like, 100%. Who, who would you even say yep. before him? Who before him is even like in the conversation? I mean, it has to be. Right. But he's just national, yep. national and basically not running for office just because, I mean, you can't really run for office as an African-American at the time, but you can still talk and people will listen and they listen to Douglas. Right. Yeah. Well, and like a lot of those, uh, a lot of the appointments that he got at, you know, to different government posts after the war, he was the first black person in any of those. Right. Right. And it was because he was, you know, because he was so intelligent and well-spoken and you know could write you know so well that he basically like he was just so good at you know convincing people of you know the 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 abolitionist ideas that they basically had no choice other than to to listen to him to consider what he was saying you know like we were talking about with his with his book like his writings were so good that people like there's no way this the guy used to be a slave there's no way right so so you hear him talk it's the same kind of thing it's just like wow okay I, yeah, he's basically yeah, he's changing hearts and minds his whole career. Yeah, and I think he's a I think he's a shoe in for the uh, most interesting Americans bracket. Oh yeah, for sure. He a hundred percent. Yeah, he makes the tournament pretty easily. And actually, and so something you said it made me think of uh, so the importance of education in slave liberation and the idea that obviously an educated person is going to be l- less okay with their lot in life, and you even see that into today when you look at. Uh, countries that oppress r- women's rights and things like that. And I don't know these stats off the top of my head, but they basically talk about the more educated you can get women around the world, the older they are when they finally have kids, the fewer kids they have on average. And obviously then the, just, and that's not even to get into the career opportunity. So it's just crazy the correlation between women's education and birth rates, which is something that's not necessarily intuitive but it is all part of the larger umbrella i mean it's kind of it's not connected directly to slavery but as far as oppression and suppression and all those kinds of things there is a connection between education and then the lack of education being used as a tool of suppression and that's uh very very uh deliberate yeah that that quote from his former owner about uh you know if you teach him to read there'd be no keeping him it would forever unfit him to be a slave like yeah like the lack of education that wasn't an accident like they knew if like educated people are way harder to enslave, nigh impossible. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then you mentioned the idea of former slaves ending up in the UK and Ireland because they already speak English. And then mm-hmm. I don't know that we've ever mentioned Liberia in Africa, which is a country in West Africa that was founded in the 1820s largely by former slaves to the point that like. Liberia, as in like liberate, like liberty, f- liberty, like it's, yeah. it's it's from the word for free or the Latin for free, and their capital city is Monrovia, after like James Monroe, who is president at the time, right? And their flag is the U.S. flag with one star instead of fifty. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And 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 their cost, their government structure is basically set is modeled after the United States. So 
yeah, worth uh, worth mentioning the the country of Liberia and how it kind of ties things. I, I don't think we'd ever mentioned it before. Okay, so yeah, that was a bit of a side <laughs> tangent, bit of a tangent, but uh, all all part of the plan here. So when you see the cameo, yeah, he's, of Fred Petrucci, he's in the movie. He is in the movie for like he's in the movie for about. 30 seconds total yeah, if that <laughs> uh but i i just i couldn't help myself once i started the research i was like all right i i like this is all stuff that that i i need to talk about yeah so. no it, it's it, and again i think it's if, if we're getting people to watch these movies it is nice having that context because they it is kind of a weighted cameo like you can definitely tell when they introduce him to shaw in the film it's meant to carry a lot of weight but the film doesn't give us any of the context right. other than here's a name you yeah. may have heard of Exactly. And it would make sense that the Shaws would have been the kind of people socializing with Frederick Douglass. Like, that's realistic. Very realistic. Right. Yeah. So, in the film, they kind of show things happening way earlier than they did, and I'm not even sure why. So, they have this regiment getting together in the fall of 1862. There's even a scene where they kind of say Merry Christmas to each other when they're all kind of at camp, but... Nothing happened with this until 1863. So I don't know why they... Because ex- they did the opposite of accelerating it. They actually slowed down the timeline, which is usually the opposite of what you see in the film. So Shaw didn't even make Colonel until April of 1863, after the regiment had already been formed. And it kind of makes sense because the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation was January 1st, 1863. And it was after that that a lot of these regiments started getting formed. In earnest, like there were some people kind of got the ball rolling without full permission before. And so there was kind of various degrees of allowing this or not allowing this. But the big flood was after the Emancipation Proclamation. I think it was also at first, but then once they got the ball rolling, uh, enough troops volunteered that the 55th Massachusetts was actually formed not long after the 54th, but they left that completely out of the film. Basically, because you had so many, you needed to form another regiment. And then, yeah, after after they were training, again, the timeline is, is was way tighter in real life. So they pretty much head to South Carolina after a couple months of training. They're already kind of heading down, which is, you know, kind of like the last third of the movie is them heading down to South Carolina. Yeah. And, yes, they were used as uh, for manual labor at first until Shaw petitioned for them to see action. And I couldn't find, again, th- there's definitely things in the film that they get right. But the drama with the uniforms and the shoes and that kind of stuff, I actually couldn't find anything specific on that. Again, it feels right, and I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I just just couldn't find anything specific about African-American soldiers being denied shoes and uniforms in in my research. That's one that could kind of go either way. Like, I could see that, I could definitely see that actually being a thing that happened, but I could also see that as just a way for the filmmakers to show like how plucky and resolved and, you know, and underdog the, the regiment was by, you know, showing that they have a racist quartermaster who doesn't want to give them shoes or uniforms. Right. And then the argument for it being made up is no, Hey, once they decided they could be troops, they were troops and they got equipment for troops. So it's also possible. It was all just made up. They did join with the second South Carolina to go to Darien, Georgia, which is mentioned by name in the film. And they get there and it turns out to be eluding. That regiment, the second South Carolina, they mentioned the the commander of that regiment, Colonel James Montgomery is from Kansas. And that's that's true. Oh, yes, yes. Montgomery did order the town burned and Shaw disagreed. That's true. But it wasn't as dramatic as we see in the film. In the film, they make basically as soon as Shaw denies or declines to have his men set fire to the town, 
Montgomery makes this big effort, fine. Then you can file an official complaint and then meet at your court martial for denying an order. And in the meantime, your troops will be under my command. In real life, Montgomery's reaction was like, okay, cool, more fun for me. <laughs> so like, yeah. Shaw, Shaw, Shaw challenges him on it and Montgomery just kind of shrugs it off in real life. Right. And then in a, in a letter to uh, his commanding officers, Shaw wrote, quote, I am perfectly willing to burn any place which resists or gives some reason for such a proceeding. But it seems to me barbarous to turn women and children adrift in that way. And if I am only assisting Colonel Montgomery in a private enterprise of his own, it is very distasteful to me. Unquote. <laughs> that was about the extent of his yeah. uh, his rebuke. Uh, so yeah, uh, well, yeah, you said you had some notes on Montgomery? Yeah, so uh, he, in the movie he says he's from Kentucky. That's also true. Um, he was born in Ohio, but he spent time in Kentucky as a young man and then moved to Kansas in 1854 during the Bleeding Kansas era. Oh, yeah. um, and led free state militia forces there. Um, he even worked with John Brown, and he was one of the guys who planned to raid John Brown's prison. Um, after the raid on Harper's Ferry, they were going to try and um, release oh, him, try yeah, and spring, uh, yeah, help yeah. him escape. But uh, I guess the weather was so bad, like there was a bunch of snow or something, because it, it was December, so there was a bunch of snow in Pennsylvania, and it, they, they weren't able to do it, and then he ended up getting executed. But... During the Civil War, uh, Montgomery was commissioned as a colonel, and he actually led unsanctioned raids into Missouri with Union forces, hmm. um, which I thought was interesting. And kind of fits his character in the film, as far as like going a little rogue. Yeah, like that was very much his thing. Like he was like, "Oh, I was already gonna be doing, you know, these these raids on pro-slavery." He, he was another guy like like John Brown, who was like very anti-slavery to the point of like if a couple innocent people get killed whatever i'm gonna be pushing the anti-slavery it's collateral damage for the greater good in his mind yeah exactly and so his his deal was like oh well i was already gonna be doing these raids anyway i might as well do that under the flag of the american government in uniform with more guys and better guns (laughs) so he would he led several unsanctioned raids on pro-slavery towns uh such as the sacking of osceola in 1862 he was eventually given command of the second south carolina regiment which like just in the movie was a uh, an all uh, an all black regiment one of his uh, most famous raids was the raid on the combahee ferry in 1863 where they freed 800 slaves and they even had the help of harriet tubman on that one and then yeah i also have here that the the burning of darien georgia uh, that is real and there's a quote it's actually a line said by Montgomery in the movie, but it's that quote is from one of Shaw's letters where he said, the Southerners must be made to feel that this is a real war uh, and that they were to be swept away by the hand of God like the Jews of old. Shaw said that? No, 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 no. Shaw wrote that in a letter saying Montgomery said oh, this to me okay. during the raid. But in the movie, we see that as we see the moment right. that huh. that Montgomery is saying that. He also tells Shaw... Well, Shaw reports that he told him, quote, we are outlawed and therefore not bound by the rules of regular warfare. So in the movie, they have the scene where Shaw is reading the orders about like any black soldiers that are captured are basically going to be either sent to slavery or killed. And any white officers that are captured, you're inciting a slave revolt. So you're also going to be executed. Basically, you're either going to die in battle or if you're captured, we're just going to hang you. Right. And so then Montgomery takes this to say, oh, okay, they're going to take the gloves off. 
we're going to take the gloves off too. We're going to start burning all your towns and looting all of your towns. And yeah, we're we're just not going to follow the... If you don't want to follow the rules of war, then we're not going to either. Huh. So fair is fair in, in his mind. Which and I'm sure you probably get, will get to Sherman's uh, end of the war here stuff too, which has to do with a lot of burning as well. So then we get to the Battle of Fort Wagner, which what we see in the film seems pretty similar to reality. But so like the re- they kind of mentioned in the film that they can only send one regiment at a time. And in reality, that's true because the approach to the fort was very narrow. But then when they show it in the film, am I am I wrong? It looks like there's plenty of room for more regiments. They just don't use it. Like, or is that more like once you cross the moat part, that was narrow. And so having a bunch of people wide before that point, it would be unnecessary. I was a little confused by what they showed us in the film versus what the reality of that was. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. And uh, and actually, you you can't check by looking at the real uh, Fort Wagner because it's not there anymore mm. <laughs> because it was eroded away by the sea. Which goes to there being a narrow approach to it because it was so close to the water and had these issues. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the film to me just didn't look like it was as restrictive as real life. You know, like I said, they they say we can only send one at a time, but then they don't show us the reason why you can only send one at a time. In my mind, anyway. Yeah, I think it was. I think it's kind of like a like a narrow land bridge situation. No, right. But but I, I guess that what to me wasn't shown very well on on film as far as how narrow it was and why that yeah. was that way. It seemed to me like just super yeah. wide, and they were just all coming and anyway. So, yes, as we see in the film, Shaw was killed pretty early in the assault. And then after hours, they, after several hours of fighting, they fall, they fall back. The film kind of makes it seem like they're, well, okay, it kind of almost contradicts itself. They hit that last little ridge where wherever they get to the, the center, and then you realize, oh, crap. And then the idea, it almost looks like they all get killed. But then it does say in the text at the end of the film that they lost about half, which is true. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't all, but it, it was about half. The regular half have to fall back. And obviously that wasn't just them. Like, other troops, other regiments were following, and then they all have to fall back. It is an unsuccessful attack, as they say in the film. Uh, the fort was never taken. Which which is not true. Well, at this time, I guess I should say, right? Like, it wasn't taken na- now. Obviously, the South loses the war, but it wasn't taken, like, this week in July. No, the fort was abandoned by the Confederacy on September 7th, 1863, after a long siege and heavy shelling. Oh, the the North never let up? So July was unsuccessful, but ultimately the North takes it two weeks, two months later? Right. That blurb at the end about the fort was never taken and like they it was for the duration of the war, that's not that's not true. Okay. But I guess the the correct part is the attack. The attack failed. was the, unsuccessful. Okay, that's okay. Correct. I, was, oh, I was reading too much into that. That it, so it was actually taken just two months later. Okay. Right. But I I think that that's what the the text blurb at the end is supposed to convey, is that is that they're saying like, oh, like the the fort withstood the rest of the war, and it, but that's not that's not true. Like the the Union did take the fort just a couple months later. Well, that's funny. So I think then the end of the film then made me read into when I'm seeing in you know on the historical notes that it's a failed attack. I just then added on they never then led a successful attack. But you're saying, oh no, they did later when the South left it. Okay, yeah, because there was interesting. There was an attack before this one that was unsuccessful on the 10th, on July 10th, like a week earlier. And then the second attack, they said, okay, well, we'll try like a really long artillery bombardment first and then attack, which is the one where the 54th 54th Mass leads the charge and they're 
Uh, They end up reaching the fort, but they're pushed back after close-in hand-to-hand fighting. And then the Union's able to set up uh, like a little bit of a firing line, but the Confederate reinforcements arrive and end up pushing them out. And so that second attack is also unsuccessful. But then they basically, like for the whole month of August, besiege the fort and, you know, continuously shell it. And the Confederates basically determine that it's untenable to hold the fort and they abandon it on September 7th in 1863. And it was then them capturing that fort is what let them close down the port of Charleston. Which is the whole point, right. And they still mentioned that in the film. Which right. was the whole point that they were trying to take it in the first place because Charleston was a popular port for blockade running, as well as the Union would have seen it as a moral victory because it was where the war began. Right. Because of Fort Sumter. And also, Charleston itself was this kind of like hotbed for secessionist sentiment since the early days of the movement. So basically how you think of like a like a Massachusetts, like a, a Massachusetts being the the hotbed for the abolitionist movement, like with Frederick Douglass and John Brown and Garrison. Charleston was kind of like the opposite of that. Like the we need to be our own country so we can keep slavery type movement. Right. They they were saying it for a long time before it actually happened. Right, right. Yeah. Right, that's true. It's worth mentioning. When, when South Carolina seceded after Lincoln gets elected, it wasn't like that was decided on a whim. That was a long time coming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in the film, they show Shaw dumped with his men into the mass grave, and that's true with the added that he was stripped first. And I don't know, like completely naked, but they, they took his uniform off, or at least make, took his, uh, you know, so he couldn't tell he was an officer kind of thing. And then they unceremoniously dump him in the grave with the men. and. Now, they don't necessarily highlight in the film how big of an insult the South intended that to be. The norm would have been, if you were in command of white troops, even if they do a mass grave for all the soldiers, they would pick out the officers, and even the South would send the officers back north out of respect. Correct. And so because Shaw was in charge of African-American troops, they were basically like, well, screw this guy, throw him in with all the other darkies in in their mind. Right. Yeah. Uh, Meaning it to be a massive uh, insult. But it did not have the desired effect. Shaw's parents actually saw it as a point of pride. Again, these are dyed-in-the-wool abolitionists. And they just, they saw it like, hey, that's, that befits any, any commander. And there's a letter from Shaw's father, and I, I don't know who the recipient was, but it reads, we would not have his body removed from where it lies, surrounded by his brave men and devoted soldiers. We can imagine no holier place than that in which he lies among his brave and devoted followers, nor wish for him better company. What a bodyguard he has, unquote. Yeah, and Shaw would probably feel the same way. And like, right. I mean, any, I don't know, I, I would think that the the culture is definitely different now than it was at the time. But like any military commander, if they, you know, fall on the battlefield would much rather be interred with the men that they were fighting with rather than having them you know their men in a mass grave and themselves picked out and taken back to be buried you know with the family plot or whatever but given the exceptions we've said with racism in the north you would also not be surprised if they saw this as a step too far of that and uh but the shahs were not such people true that so they 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 they're definitely a family that had the courage of their convictions Unlike maybe some others in the North that like, oh, yeah, no one should be slaves. But also, I don't want those people around me, which is maybe a little more common in the North. After the war, the mass grave was dug up because it kind of makes sense. You don't just leave it there on the beach if you kind of know where it is. 
and the bodies were reinterred in Beaufort National Cemetery. Uh, but they, they never bothered going through and trying to identify who is who. They just kind of buried everybody as unknown, uh, unmarked graves, or I guess, sorry, marked as unknown at that cemetery. So big thing the film leaves out is uh, Shaw was married. <laughs> he met his future wife, Anna Haggerty, in 1861, and they were married in May of 1863, like two months before the battle at Fort Wagner, after the regiment had been formed. So right in the middle of all the events in this film, Shaw got married. And we don't really know much else about her, but they, uh, she never remarried and died in 1907. And there is a memorial to Shaw today in Boston Common. It's actually been there since 1897. And I'm actually kind of mad that I didn't realize that when I, w- I went to, you know, Boston in 2011 and walked around Boston Common. Probably saw this shrine and it didn't click that it was the guy from Glory. Oh, really? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I would, you would think I would have seen it because Boston Common isn't that big. There's also a Shaw neighborhood in Washington, D.C. named after Robert Shaw here. And... The pay thing, uh, they mentioned they make a big deal about the guys denying the pay. Mm. Yeah, obviously, since Denzel's character is fictional, I didn't really find anything about there being someone who kind of ripped up or uh, whipped up the sentiment that they should do it. Wikipedia says it was Shaw that encouraged the men not to pay, take the pay. Um, I couldn't necessarily find anything corroborating that, but uh, it actually was a hair worse than the film makes it in that. So the the white soldiers in the North were paid $13 a month, and the African-American soldiers, despite what they were earlier promised, were offered just 10 That's true. But another $3 was deducted for basically like clothing and, and, and material expenses was deducted. So they actually only got 7 and then the white soldiers were not deducted that same $3 expenses every month. So it was actually a $6 difference, not a $3 difference in real life. So yeah, the uh, the 54th Massachusetts was the second African-American regiment formed. The first was a Kansas regiment. The first Kansas was actually the first uh, in the nation. Huh. There's an iconic painting. It's not super famous, but if you go to the Wikipedia page for the attack on Fort Wagner or the 54th Massachusetts, there is a painting of the attack on Fort Wagner, and you can see a wounded mm-hmm. uh, Shaw surrounded by a bunch of African-American soldiers. That painting is actually from 1890. So this is a story that has kind of had legs uh, ever since it happened. Like it was, it was very impactful at the time. And the quote we get at the end of the film with Lincoln crediting the early African-American soldiers for the victory. That's true. Like the, the just there, there was a, this influx. It, it, it did help turn the tide arguably as far as just the added manpower. And then also just from a, morale standpoint just like who's going to be the most uh most motivated for the north to win these african-american soldiers i mean it's it's true yeah and oh, a little note too so their first battle so we basically see them in two battles fort wagner is when they they lose but there was a battle a few days before that and the, the film says at james island july 16th 1863 that's accurate it yep. doesn't name the battle that's the battle of grimble's landing And after that battle, which was a victory, uh, the brigadier general in charge of the whole thing personally sent Shaw a letter praising him and his troops and their role in the battle. And then, of course, when Shaw shares that with his men, they're like, heck yeah, like huge for morale to have like that uh, brigadier general giving him a shout out. That battle, though, is pretty heavily dramatized, though, for the movie. In reality, 
only three Confederate soldiers were killed in that battle. Oh, okay. So it was a victory, but it was a much smaller skirmish than we saw in the film. So it's it's a uh, it was kind of a shaping operation for what would eventually be the battle for Fort Wagner. They wanted to like draw some Confederate troops away from the fort, so they you know moved on to onto James Island, and it was a victory because they were successful in drawing those troops away. But the Union lost fourteen soldiers. They had fourteen soldiers killed, seventeen wounded, and fourteen taken prisoner. Hmm. And then the Confederates only had three killed, twelve wounded, and and three missing. It was like there were people killed in the battle. It was an actual battle with guys shooting at each other, but it wasn't this like giant clash where there's like dozens of dudes killed and people are stabbing and shooting each other in the face left and right and you know dead bodies everywhere right okay. it was a it was a relatively small battle by uh gotcha gotcha by civil war standards right which yeah was a, a horribly costly conflict of course by the end of the war about 10 percent of the union army was african-american which i thought was uh, much more significant than i would have guessed and the biggest issue, so we mentioned that maybe the clothing and shoes and all those kinds of issues were maybe perhaps exaggerated, but uh, you've already kind of hinted at it with what the Confederacy said. The biggest issue and threat for African-American soldiers was that they were treated far harsher once captured. Again, they weren't always executed like they kind of threatened in the film, uh, but there was one instance where that is exactly what happened, where the Confederate soldiers just straight up executed like, you know, shot and killed, not even uh, all the black captive soldiers. Uh, and that event was witnessed by one Nathan Bedford Forrest, who did not step in to stop it. Uh, no surprise there, because he helped found the KKK later. Yeah. So I mentioned that there were real guys they could have used in the film. And so I wanted to, I found three by name that I wanted to mention. Again, I'm sure there's others whose names we could probably find, but there were three that stuck out to me especially when we get three main ones in the film between, uh, again, I don't know the actor who plays their their well-to-do friend, Thomas, uh, who's kind of born free and educated up north, uh, and then Denzel's character, who's kind of, uh, we kind of get the feeling like probably an escaped slave with a rough life in his background, uh, and then Morgan Freeman, who's maybe somewhere in between, where he's a, a freeman, and who, I, but I don't know exactly his circumstances there. Again, those guys are all fictional. So... First in real life is one uh, Joseph Barquet. He's definitely kind of a, you could argue that their friend Thomas is kind of a proxy for Barquet, uh, but he wasn't from the North. He's uh, from mix, he was of mixed ancestry, born into a wealthy family, uh, family in South Carolina. There was actually a surprising population of freed blacks in Charleston at the time. And most of them are poor, but the Barquets were actually well off. Like they, they still had to work, but they owned their own business. So this guy was kind of a wealthy mixed race guy in Charleston before the war, which is just kind of blew my mind that there was even people like that uh, in existence. Barquet did fight in the Mexican-American War, worked uh, mostly as a Mason, both before and after the Civil War. When he was moved up north, he became a big, uh, became a big advocate in the abolitionist movement in the 1850s. Like you mentioned with Douglas, Barquet was uh, speaking and writing. He appreciated what John Brown was trying to do, but didn't agree with the use of violence. And then so in April of 1863, Barquet joins the 54th Massachusetts. He survived the attack on Fort Wagner uh, and was promoted to sergeant afterward and continued to write and take speaking engagements throughout the rest of the war. 
And then after the war, he lived mostly in uh, Illinois, specifically Galesburg and a little bit in Chicago. He fought to keep the school in Galesburg integrated because like before the war, they were already integrated. But then as the black population got more substantial, the city wanted to split it off into a separate school. And he's like, no, what are you doing? We need to keep it integrated. He remained a uh, respected member of that community, even if it kind of got to the point where the white community in Galesburg just kind of rolled their eyes and be like, oh, Marquet again, always making a fuss. And then he kind of started drinking too much and died in 1880. But again, kind of remained a well-respected member of the community. So again, it's like, why do they not include this guy in the movie? You could definitely tweak the Thomas character and make him this Barquet guy. Like, it just seems so, so unnecessary to go fictional. And again, I'm not saying it's fully disrespectful to not include these real guys. But like, when you can, why wouldn't you? And so, I mean, again, this guy could have been the main character for the whole show. Another one. Same last name as me is Robert John Simmons. Uh, not much is known about Simmons before the war. He was from Bermuda, or at least of Bermudan descent. Uh, he joined the 54th Massachusetts in March of 1863. Both Shaw and Shaw's father were reportedly very impressed by Simmons, who was just very bright and had worked with the British Army in Bermuda, if I think I understood that correctly. Uh, just kind of an impressive figure. like So this very bright guy, physically well-built and just like an intimidating presence, almost like what we talked about with George Washington. Like you just look at the guy and like, oh, that's a soldier. That was kind of who Robert John Simmons was. Uh, he was wounded and captured at Fort Wagner and then died in Confederate custody of his wounds after having his arm amputated. He actually, after the that first battle we mentioned, the Gimbel's Landing, after the battle at Gimbel's Landing, uh, Robert Simmons wrote a wrote a letter in which it, the, basically the title of the film ties into a, a letter that Simmons wrote back. He wrote uh, it, it wasn't published until after his death, but he wrote, "God has protected me through this my first fiery leaden trial, and I do give Him the glory." Mm. And so the, the idea is that that was an inspiration for the film's title. Although here's again a good example of Wikipedia isn't always reliable because on one page it says. This letter of Simmons is, is, was the inspiration for the film's title. But then in another one, it said the filmmakers didn't know about Robert Simmons at the time they made the film. <laughs> so who knows? But that, that phrase was used in his, in his letter. Um, and he also, just because we mentioned everything happening in July of 1863, Simmons had a seven-year-old nephew who was killed in the draft riots in New York that same month. Hmm. And then the last one I wanted to mention... Uh, and he's the one you can actually find a, picture, a couple pictures of on Wikipedia because this, this man won the Medal of Honor for his role at the Battle of Fort Wagner. This is William Harvey Carney, who was born a slave in Virginia, and we're not exactly sure how he got his freedom. He either escaped via Underground Railroad or was freed. We're not really sure. But regardless, he also joined the 54th Massachusetts in March of 1863, and it Took until 1900, but he did win the Medal of Honor, which was actually fairly common. A lot of these guys were winning Medals of Honor for decades after. It wasn't like anything against uh, Carney here. Uh, That's just kind of how it played out for a lot of people. So uh, actually, I'll just go ahead and read what they, what they said at his citation in 1900 when they awarded him the Medal of Honor. It read, when the color sergeant was shot down, this soldier grasped the flag, led the way to the parapet, and planted the colors thereon. When the troops fell back, he brought off the flag under a fierce fire in which he was twice severely wounded. So basically just for being, so we kind of see this a little bit from Denzel, 
uh, you could argue yeah. in, in the film when they when they and I even hit my notes. I even kind of wrote like, "You see, Mel Gibson, this is how you do a flag <laughs> waving kind of thing that feels more <laughs> organic and natural." <laughs> so we get that moment from Demzel picking up the flag and kind of rallying the troops. Carney was the guy who did that in real life. So again, you could have made you could have named the guy William Carney. Okay, yeah, and that's it's a lot better too in this movie than in the Patriot because they even set that up earlier in the film with. Yes. With Shaw talking to, to Denzel's right. character, ask, asking him to, saying it's a it's a good you know it, it's considered a great honor, and he says like oh I'm not I'm not fighting for you I'm not fighting for the regiment I don't care about anyone else right so I don't want to I don't want to carry the flag and then that's like him overcoming that you know that kind of like lone wolf mentality of, and him actually showing that he is there for the guys on his left and his right and so he grabs right, the flag so right. it's like a, it makes it way more powerful than just out of nowhere, Mel Gibson grabs a flag, <laughs> you know. Yes, and uh, and then the quote from Carney is supposedly after again he was wounded, so he basically they retreat. He gets the flag back to hands it off to someone else, so he can then you know be dealt with his wounds. But then he he said supposedly, boys, I only did my duty. The old flag never touched the ground. And then and maybe, maybe I wonder if they changed the name just because he did survive the war, and so. They wanted to kill off Denzel's character and have him, you know, get shot down holding the flag. And that's more dramatic. And William Carney didn't get shot down. He lived. So after the war, he was a mailman in Massachusetts for three decades. Like just kind of a, just a working guy. Of, of, all, of all things, he died after an elevator accident in 1908 at the age of 68. Oh, my God. There's a book written by a captain of the 54th, not anybody who they even kind of show in the in the film, but probably just, you know, the third guy down from Shaw ends up writing a book after the war. And he mentioned both Carney and Simmons and commended them in his book as kind of hmm. important to the 54th and everything they were doing. Also worth mentioning, so we see Carrie, Carrie Ellis's character, uh, again, of Princess Bride fame, not doing a great American accent. <laughs> he sounds still pretty British in this. Okay, the the accent thing, I didn't like him or Matthew Broderick because he didn't have a great American accent and Matthew Broderick was doing a really bad, like, New England or Boston accent, too. Yeah, yeah, I won't disagree with that. I thought that, uh, like, the Jeff Daniels, uh, you know, main New England accent from Glory was way better. Yeah, Matthew true. Broderick, it's like it slips in and out. Sometimes he does it, sometimes he doesn't. When he does do it, it doesn't sound very good. Huh. There were some accent problems with those two in this uh, in this movie. <laughs> right, versus like, I'm trying to think, Morgan Freeman might be a little too, I hate to say too educated, but arguably that character would not have been as well educated at the time. Versus Denzel seems like spot on. Oh, and their, their crack shot guy with the stutter honestly seemed kind of spot yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, or hey, the British, the, the uh, not British, the smart guy Thomas, who's who's well brought up, he seemed more appropriately New England than Matthew Roderick. You could argue. Yeah. As yeah. Far as kind of the posh guy from uh, up there. So again, I think they did this because they implied he dies in the battle. So their the character name for Kelly Ellis in the film is made up, but there's a real number two to Shaw, Edward Hallowell who survived the attack on Fort Wagner and then afterward was in charge of the 54th, who was also from an abolitionist family, whose summer home was even a, a, a stop on the Underground Railroad. So it's like, why not make this guy Edward Hallowell? Like, it just seems so weird, some of these choices uh, they made. Other than, again, he survived the war, although not very long. 
uh, the real Hallowell uh, died in 1871, uh, you know, just like five years after the war, likely due from complication from war injuries. I, I did have one one tiny little thing. Uh, so at the beginning of the film, when we see their uh, the Union encampment at the Battle of Antietam, just something that I thought was a, a kind of interesting little world building thing that I appreciated. And I'm sure you did, too, especially because you like, you know, you like sports <laughs> is that we see uh, Union soldiers playing baseball. Oh, yeah. And that is actually uh, accurate. So at the time. In the early to mid 1800s, there were several different styles of baseball that were popular in the United States, as well as cricket. Um, so cricket would have been played in the United States. And then there was a, uh, in the Northeast specifically, there was a style of baseball called town ball or Philadelphia town ball that was popular in the Philadelphia area. And then one that was more popular in New England called the Massachusetts game. But it was New York style baseball that during the Civil War expanded to become basically the baseball that we know today. So the fact that we see Union soldiers playing baseball, uh, that is accurate. That would have been a game that would have been uh, that they would have known and that would have been popular at the time. Oh, I mean, yeah, the the first professional baseball leagues were not long after this. Correct. The first uh, governing body, the National Association of Baseball Players, was founded in 1857 oh before the civil war yeah okay so yeah uh and, and we, yeah we do forget that like games evolve just like anything and people just kind of play games and at some point they get codified to be played on a larger scale within a larger network and if you're gonna have a big league you need to decide okay which version of the game are we going to go with and even today of course baseball is kind of crazy because even today they still have slightly different rules for the american league versus the national league there's like, it's right. like, is it basically the one, I forget which is which, but in one, the pitchers have to bat and the other one, they get to use the designated hitter. And so like even the two leagues have different, different rules. Yeah. And it's, it's actually, it's like a, it's an evolution of a British game that was played in uh, Great Britain and Ireland going back as far as like the 1740s. It, you know, there's like different evolutions of a kind of stick and ball game going all the way back to before America was even a country. Right, it makes sense. And yeah, you see how, you know, cricket doesn't look a lot like baseball today, but you can see them having similar origins where a pitched ball is hit into the field of play and the batter right. then has to run a series of bases. Like, that's the same game. Yeah. There's this, the you know, rule variations. Same as like rugby and football are definitely kind of, of common origin. Anyway, well, actually, we'll probably get to baseball later when we talk about like eight men out or something down the line. Okay, and then my last note here was on Ralph Waldo Emerson. In Shaw, one of Shaw's letters home, he mentions to his mother that he got like the Emerson that she had sent. And Emerson was indeed, of course, a, a famous writer and philosopher at the time. He was an abolitionist. So the Shaw's sharing his writings makes perfect sense. I mean, shoot, they were the kind of people who may have actually met him, but I don't know that for sure. And so uh, Emerson was a leader in the Transcendentalist movement. And that's something I, I've heard of, but I've never really nailed down the definition. So here's my understanding of Transcendentalism. And maybe, I don't know if you have any insight on this, but basically it's a kind of what I would call a spiritual secularism in that they're not concerned with religion, but they're also not concerned with like the trappings of society. You know, we, you, we even kind of can talk about that society is technically arbitrary. So a transcendentalist would be more about the beauty of a place, the peace of nature, the importance of an individual. 
I even kind of joked that like, so like hippies. So Emerson was a hippie. Uh, but uh, anyway, that was just kind of a prominent person at at, at the time. Um, anything else? Nope. Okay. So it's kind of it's kind of a weird note to end on, but. <laughs> <laughs> Or actually, yeah, one more thing real quick. It is a 95 slash 93 on Rotten Tomatoes, which is more in line with how I kind of always remembered it fondly there. And then Oscar-wise, it was nominated for five Oscars, winning three, Denzel, of course, plus cinematography and sound. Okay, we are winding down the Civil War. We will try to finish that up next time when we look at the Oscar winner for Best Picture starring Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves. <laughs>